appreciate you do that. Let me encourage you to be getting into your bulletins. There should be a, a piece of paper in there that has an outline in it. Pull that out. If you need a pen, we have some guys in the back that would be happy to, to, to get a pen for you. And, uh, and, and if you haven't turned in your Bibles, please let me encourage you to do that. And as we enter into this book, I just, I just want you to know if, you know, anything about, if you know anything about the New Testament, then you know about the Ephesian church. The, the church in, in the city of Ephesus was one of, of the most well-known churches in, in, in all of the New Testament world. The, the church in Ephesus had a rich heritage of, of leadership. The Apostle Paul introduced the gospel to, to this city in, in about 50 AD, it happened on a second, second missionary journey. You can read about that in the book of Acts. And at one stretch of time, Paul spent three years in, in Ephesus. I mean, more time than Paul spent anywhere else, he, he spent right here in this city. And aside from Paul, there were, there were several other prominent New Testament figures who spent time ministering in this city as well. Aquila and Priscilla, who were that husband and wife tag team uh, evangelistic duo. They, they, were in, they were in Ephesus. Apollos, who was, who was a learned debater and he was an Old Testament scholar. He, he, was, he was ministering in Ephesus. Timothy, one of Paul's personal disciples, spent time ministering to the church in Ephesus. And, and last and certainly not least were Anesphorus and, and Tychicus. They, 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 they were there as well. Paul, Paul's ministry in Ephesus had a, had a far-reaching effect. It began, it began with the Jews. Typical of Paul, when he would move to a new city, he would find the local synagogue and he would go there. As, as a former Pharisee, a former Jewish leader himself, he would go there. His heart was to help Jewish people find the Messiah, find him as Jesus. And he would be there for a season. Eventually, he would get kicked out. They would get tired of hearing him. And at that point, Paul would start, start an evangelistic crusade with the Gentiles. He did that in Ephesus. He started going to the, to the Hall of Tyrannus, and he went there every day. And in, in fact, in fact uh, it says in, in Acts chapter 19, verse 10, that he, this went on for two years two years, so that eventually all the Jews and all the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So Paul started in the synagogue, went to this public place, the Hall of Tyrannus, and then, and then pretty soon, literally, people were coming from around the region to hear Paul as he, as he taught and he's, as he debated and as he, as he preached. And, and honestly, this became the model for Paul's ministry. It, Paul's ministry became a hub ministry. He would go to a major city. He would go to the Jews, then go to the Gentiles, and eventually we, he would have arms shooting out to all the, the, the region. And it would all happen through this hub city. People would come to the city to buy, to trade, to, for entertainment, for worship, and they would potentially hear about the gospel there. And, and many believe that, the, that this the stop in Ephesus and the Ephesian church was really the springboard for the founding of the other six churches that we read about in Revelation 2 and 3, the six churches of Asia Minor, the seven churches of Asia Minor that, that, that John was addressing from, from Jesus in, in the book of Revelation. The church was also connected to several really important letters that would eventually become part of the New Testament. Of course, there's Ephesians that we know about. The first and second Timothy were also sent to Ephesus. Timothy was a, pa a young pastor there. Paul penned these words of encouragement to that pastor and, and sent them to Ephesus. First, second, and third John were written from Ephesus. 
John was, John was there for a season writing, and, and, and the Ephesians were likely the, the people who first read the book of Revelation. By that time, John was in exile on the island of Patmos, and he, he wrote this, and it probably went straight to Ephesus where those Christians read it first. Now, Paul loved this church. And he loved the elders in this church, who, by the way, were trained firsthand by the Apostle Paul. And when he was on his way back to Jerusalem, at the end of his third missionary journey, he called for the elders of Ephesus to come and meet him. Paul was in Miletus, sailing to Jerusalem, and he wanted to have this last engagement with these guys. Now, Now, Paul knew that he was facing hardships, facing trials, probably facing prison. But he had to go, and he had to do what the Holy Spirit was leading him to do. So on his way to Jerusalem, he stopped in Miletus. He sent for these elders of Ephesus, and they came, and they met him. It was an intense time of of prayer. Uh, They they, they wept together as Paul was on his way. And when Paul got to Jerusalem, you know that he was arrested there. He spent two years in jail in Caesarea, and then it became very, very, very obvious to Paul that he was not going to get a fair trial. So what he did as a Roman citizen was he exercised his right. He appealed to Caesar, which took him to Rome, the place that he had always wanted to go. Maybe not as a prisoner, but that's how he went. He spent two years in in Rome under house arrest. He was in his own rented house. People were coming and going. He had to stay there. And that's how the book of Acts ends. In Acts chapter 27 and 28, Paul is in the city of Rome. And while he was in Rome, Paul wrote... um, what we, what we know today is the prison epistles, four letters in our New Testament. Sometime around 62 to 64 AD, Paul wrote Colossians and Philippians and, and Ephesians and the, and the individual book to Philemon. The letters were all written with joy. They were all written with encouragement. They were coming from the hand of an apostle who expected to be released really quickly from his, from his prison, from his prison. And, and that, that joy in Christ is, is the basis for Paul's writing his letter to the Ephesian church. And, and he waxes eloquent here right at the beginning of, of, this, of this letter as he, as he allows the blessings of Christ to just kind of flow through him to these Ephesians, to these Ephesian believers. And let me, let me just tell you, it couldn't have come at a, at, a, at, a, at a better time. The Ephesians were living in a rough circumstance, and they needed some encouragement. They needed, they needed some, some help, they, a, a jolt from the apostle. Christians in the Roman Empire, they just suffered. You have to understand that. They, they were living in a tough, tough circumstance. Christians in the, the, the Roman Empire were hated for any number of reasons. Just ask the apostle Paul. The apostle Paul ended up being beheaded because of his because of his faith. But being a Christian in Ephesus was maybe even harder. Ephesus was a city that thrived on the Greek goddess Artemis or Diana. People came from around the world to this temple. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And, and business was carried out. And worship of this false deity called Artemis was, was carried out as well. And, and to, to be involved in worship of this goddess was to be involved in sexual activity. There were literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of temple prostitutes that sold themselves to men who came to worship Artemis. The city was a cesspool of immorality. 
And the Christians there would have stood out and been scorned for their preaching and for their their lifestyles of purity. The Christians in Ephesus would have welcomed a word of encouragement from Paul. And so Paul opened his letter to the Ephesians by giving them just that. He he told his brothers and sisters in the Lord that, that, that we as followers of Jesus are blessed in bountiful ways. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, as, as I think about that, honest, it, it, it brings me to today. Because I, I, I think that this message of encouragement, this, this message of blessing is something that we probably need to hear as well. We are living in a day of hardship. It just seems that it's one thing after another. Have you felt that way? I mean, you start kind of moving through one and trying to adjust, and then all of a sudden it's something else and something else. And as I I look around and as I see the state of our world, see the state of our country, I'm just telling you, friends, I don't know that it's going to get any better soon. And because of that, it would be easy to get depressed, angry, even hostile at our circumstance. And, and And I believe If Paul were writing us, writing the grove, if he was sending us a little epistle, a little six-chapter letter, he he might start his letter to us the exact same way as he started with the Ephesians. Forget about the temporal. Look eternally. Brothers, sisters, look to the big picture. Because as Christians, in in the sense of the big picture, we are blessed. Despite our outward circumstances that seem to be troubled and painful, the reality is we are blessed. We're blessed. Would you say that with me? We're blessed. Come on, say it again. We are, we're blessed. So let me encourage you to take a few moments and understand that that these words from Paul came right from his heart and they're intended to go straight to your heart. God wants wants you to to put them here, and he wants them to be a bone of encouragement for you. So what are these blessings that Paul opens up this letter about? There there are five of them I want to put in front of you, okay? Write them down. And the first one is this. I'm blessed because I have been chosen by God. Ephesians 1.4 says it so plainly. He chose us. He chose me. He chose you, and he did it before the creation of the world. And when I started thinking about this thought, about being chosen, (laughs) the the place that my mind went this last week was when when I was in elementary school, back third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, and I started thinking about P.E. in the afternoon. And probably your school was a little bit like mine. Back in third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, we would we would go out in the afternoon for a little bit of physical exercise and 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 Typically, what the teacher would do is he would pick two people to be the captains on that day. We might be playing dodgeball, kickball, whatever, whatever is going to be, softball. We, two people would, would be picked, typically the best athletes in the class, and they would be chosen to pick their teams. And so everybody would line up on the line. Do you remember? We'd all line up, and these two people would start picking. I, you know, I pick Bill, I pick John, I pick Susie, I pick, and and would kind of go back and forth. And everybody's saying, "Me, me, me! I want to be picked." But but everybody knew it was going to come down to the six or eight or nine kids that nobody wanted. 
And so, so we would get to the point where the teams were picked and there's still six or eight people on the line and the captains are looking at each other going, you get them. No, you get them. I don't want them. I'll take what I got. And there's literally a fight about what's going to happen with these poor guys. Not chosen. I always felt sorry for those people that were at the end of, at the, end of the rope and nobody wanted them. And when people think about God choosing, man, I think that's the picture that comes to a lot of our minds. There's some people that God really wants his first choice, his second choice. And then there are some that are just not so fortunate. God's not interested in them at all. And if you've ever thought that, I'm just telling you, friends, you're wrong. If you're reading this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, that God chooses some and doesn't choose other, you would be wrong. If it were up to God, everybody would be on his team. God would just say, all of you, come on. First Timothy chapter, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes, he said, this is good. It pleases, it pleases God our Savior. What, what Paul is writing is, Timothy, I want to encourage you to pray for your leaders, even these secular leaders. Pray that there might be peace and there might be, there, there might be safety in the realm. Why? So, so that you can preach and you can teach and you can lead. Because here's the, here's the deal. God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. God's heart is not for some to be saved and some to be lost. God's heart is that all would come to that place. So here, 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 here's the simple truth, friends. God's desire is that you will be saved. God wants you saved. God wants you and he wants everybody else in heaven the heart of God is, is, is simply that. Any teaching on the subject of God's heart has to begin right here. There is nobody that God doesn't want on his team. Okay, let's put the slide, let's put the slide up and let's go, let's go one more because the second truth is something you got to write down too. In spite of the fact that God wants you on his team, the reality is you're a free will being. If it's God's choice, he chooses you, but God made you to have free will. Relationship is grounded in free will. And if there's not any free will, then there's really no relationship. God could have made you into a robot, but you would have been nothing more than an Ottoman who did what he told you to do. And there's no relationship in that. So God took a huge risk. He gave you choice. And he knew that if this relationship was gonna flourish, your choice was necessary. And here's the third simple truth. God will not violate your free will. He will not. The second God forces his will upon you, his choice upon you, then you have lost your free will. And, and again, when that happens, there's, there's no relationship. So, so God lets you go to the place that you want to go, is it, as painful as it may be. And I just encourage you right here in your notes to write down Romans chapter 1, verses 18, down through the end of the chapter, verse 32, because this is one of those places where God is letting people go. God let it. God gave them. God enabled them to do what they wanted to do. It grieved him every step of the way because things got worse and worse and worse and worse, but that's what free will will do. God loves you. He wants to choose you but he gave you free will and he won't violate that free will. And, and let me add one more thought here. In case you're wondering if we really are free will beings, well, the other commandments that are in the Old Testament and the New Testament, just prove it to be true. When, when God is encouraging you to repent, 
to turn to him, to use your gifts to serve other people, to fix your eyes on Jesus, to give your finances, to put your, put your earthly nature to death. God is pleading with you through the pages of Scripture to accomplish these things because the reality is you have a choice. If you didn't have a choice, then all of these words and all these commands would be nothing more than a farce. But you do have free will. And God is encouraging you to turn it to him. And so God's heart is that you would do just that, that you would turn to him. So what does it mean then to be chosen by God? Does it mean that God has chosen to reject some people? And the answer is no. God God chose a class of people. And I want want you to, to listen up really carefully here. God chose a class of people. And and the key word here, or words, are two. They are in him. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 says, For he, God, for God chose us in him. Now this in him is in Jesus. God chose us in him before the creation of the world. Now my, my theology professor in seminary, Jack Cottrell, who is now well into his 80s, and sometime if you want to write his name down, Cottrell, um, he's also suffering from cancer, and so you could, you could lift him up and pray. Just, just an amazing mind I had the privilege of sitting under. But he made a big, big, big deal of this point. God did not choose to bring us into him. God chose those who were in him. And, and, and there's a difference in those two statements. God has opened the door for everybody. Everybody has the opportunity to choose to be in Christ. And when you make that choice to be in Christ, God has already chosen you. God laid out a plan for salvation. The plan is Jesus. Jesus is the only way to God. Peter was preaching this in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. He said that salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name, none. There's not any other way to get to heaven. If you want to do it, it's through Jesus. That's the way to be saved. And when you choose Jesus, you you choose to be in him. The teaching here is really simple. God chooses everyone who is in relationship with Jesus. God's made the way known, he's made the path available, and he's invited everybody to come. And when you make a decision to be in Christ, then what happens is God chooses to be in you. God's arms are open wide for everybody. He is not a respecter of persons. He's not a racist. There is no race, there's no class of people that God does not love, that God does not want in his kingdom. God wants all men, all people to be saved. He chooses everybody, everybody, everybody wanted, everybody welcome. But only those who choose Christ are allowed in. Your choice. And let me tell you, friends, that that, that is a blessing. To know that the God of the universe, the Lord of all creation, that powerful voice that spoke and everything came into being, that that, that that one wants you that that one chooses you and has opened the door for you is amazing. You can can go to bed tonight with certainty in this truth. God wants me. He wants me. 
And it leads to a, a second blessing that we have in Christ. Not only does God want you, not only does God choose you, God has predestined you for adoption. Paul writes about that in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. Now, again, when people hear the word predestined, they automatically turn in their minds to, to a negative place. Now, the word here literally means to predetermine, to foreordain, to decide beforehand. The word speaks of a decision that's, meet, that's being made prior to any kind of event that happens. And the tendency of some is to interpret that to mean that everything in our life has been predetermined, that God chooses in advance everything about my life, about your life, that again, that we're nothing more than Ottomans that, that are walking through life, that God has predetermined a path. And because God is God, he could do that. He could determine the course of your life and your eternal circumstance, your eternal destination. God, God could make that decision. But he didn't. He determined to give you free will. He calls us to repentance. He tells us to choose relationship with him. But a whole lot of people hear this word predestination, and, and what they immediately do is say that cancels out the word choice, or at least it, it, it makes you need to redefine the word choice. If God has predestined us, then any choice we might have had has been absolutely negated, which raises the million-dollar question, because both of these words appear in Scripture. So here's, here's the question. How do you reconcile these things? How do you put these two thoughts together? How do you take a free will choice and balance it against a foreordained course that God has written down? And, and I want you to know that that final destination of every person, every person who has ever lived or who ever will live, has been predestined. So go back to Ephesians chapter, chapter 1, verse 4. God says it right here. God says it really clearly that he chose us in him before the creation of the world. The list of those people who are going to heaven, and by the way, the opposite of that, the people that are going to hell, those lists are already, the Lamb's book of life that Jesus is going to open up on the day of judgment, on that day, that, that, that book was written before there was ever, ever a person lived on this planet, before anybody ever took a breath God had already put that list together. So it seems like predestination negates the idea of free will. And it would if you didn't put one more word into the equation. And so here's what I want you to hear. To fully understand how God can predestine and still give us free will, you need to add this word in into the mix, and the word is foreknowledge. Romans 8.29 says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined. God can predestine because he has foreknowledge. God actually sees in advance. I mean, that's, that's what foreknowledge is. God actually knows what you are going to do before you do it. 
Now, let, let me be really clear here. That does not mean that he made the decision for you. It just means that he knows, he can see, he gets it, he understands. Now, honestly, you, you understand this because to a limited degree, you have foreknowledge as, as well. When I, when I come to this point, I often, I oftentimes come to this illustration of, of, a, of, of somebody that's standing on the, on the corner of a very tall building, looking down to the, to the city and the traffic below him. Now, I know when you look at, when you look at the, the picture, it sort of kind of makes you dizzy just being there. Any, any takers? Anybody want to go? Anybody want to stand here? Not interested here, but just pretend you put your place right here in this corner and you're looking down. And while you're looking down, let's see that you kind of pan right and you see this street that's moving this way and you're, you're looking back and you see this car that's going like 100 miles an hour and coming up the street. And then out of your ear, you hear something else, you turn this way and at the 45 you, or the 90 degree angle, you, you, you see another car that's going like 100 miles an hour coming towards the same intersection. And now you're looking at them and you see that they're coming like at the same rate of speed at the same, they're gonna hit the intersection at the same time. And, and now you're seeing that they're not gonna be able to stop. And so you're saying to yourself, they're gonna hit, they're gonna hit, there's gonna be an accident. And sure enough, before it ever happens, you say it and then boom. The accident happened. So here's the question. Did you cause it? No, you didn't cause it, but you saw it. You could have even written it down. And, and in a very limited way, this is God. It's God's foreknowledge. God has the ability to see in advance. God sits outside of the world. He sits outside of time a day is like a thousand years to God, and he sees how the paths are moving and where they're going. He knows where you're going to go and what you're going to choose. Did he decide it? No. He did not choose for you, but does he know what's going to happen? The answer is yes. And that's foreknowledge. And Because God knows in advance what you will choose, he can write it down. He can declare it to be so. And that carries across your life from the beginning to the end. God sees it. God knows. He understands. And because of that, he has the ability to write down in his Lamb's book of life the names of those people that are saved. They are literally predestined. Because of God's foreknowledge, he could take the step. He knew what you would choose. His choice is to accept everybody who is in him, in Christ. And he knows what you'll do. We have some dear friends up in Michigan. And years ago, they went to China. And the reason they went to China was to adopt a little girl. They, 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 they felt compelled, literally, by what they believed was the Holy Spirit leading them to, to take this step. And so they, they, they took the unprecedented step. They started saving their money. And, and, and then they, they got into an adoption agency and they started filling out all the forms and they started going through all the tests and all the classes and all the home studies. I mean, they opened themselves up. And then as they were accepted by the adoption agency, they received a picture. They received a, a picture of this little Chinese girl. Her name was Yahweh means feather. And they already knew at that point that her name was going to be Grace Yahweh. 
So they're praying and they're praying and they're praying. I mean, the minute they laid their eyes on this little girl, they loved her. They had chosen her. They painted her room. They bought furniture. They bought toys. They put it all together. And then the day came for them to fly literally halfway around the world to China. And when they got there and they went to the orphanage, when they, when they went through the door, they already had her face memorized. And when, with all these kids lined up as they're, as they're walking down the rows, they, they came upon her. They knew exactly who she was. She had been chosen. They'd been predestined that she would be theirs. They knew her. They saw her before they ever touched her. And friends, that's God. He wants all the people of the world to be saved. And because of his foreknowledge, he knows who will do that. And that gives him the ability to write into his book to predestine the names of those that are the saints. Jesus told us 2,000 years ago that he was going to prepare a place for us. You weren't even thought about as far as being a human being in anybody's mind yet, but in God's heart and in God's mind, you already existed. And 2,000 years ago, God in his foreknowledge had you on the list, and Jesus started building your place in heaven all those years ago. He has your name written on his heart. He loves you. He's literally adopted you into his family. He's given you his name. He's made the treasure of his kingdom at your fingertips. And God can hardly wait to get you home. And friends, I want to make sure you see this. One more thought from Ephesians chapter chapter 1, verse 5. Paul says that God did all of this in accordance with his pleasure and his will. Nobody is twisting God's arm to make him do this. God delights in doing what he's doing. He delights in bringing his children into his family. And and, and that's why he has declared in advance his heart for you. And he's actively pursuing you. The Holy Spirit is in the world literally, John 16 says, pursuing people and trying to draw them into the kingdom. He's hoping that you will choose to love him as much as he has chosen to love you. Listen, friends, take heart. You're blessed. The God of the universe has chosen you. He wants you. He's already hung your picture. He's predestined your name. Your picture hangs over his mantle place, and he's got your name on his heart. He's already predestined you into his book. And it leads to a third blessing, and that's your ransom. God paid your ransom. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Friends, here's, here's here's the truth. 
As much as God loves you and as much as God wants you, the fact is that you are unworthy of his love and you are unworthy of his presence because of sin in your life. You and I, we have all violated the law of God. And what that does is it it sets us at odds with God. Because to be in God's presence, you need to be perfect like he is. The problem is none of us are. All you need to do is open up your Bible and go to chapter 1, 2, and 3 of Genesis to read the story. In chapter 1 and 2, God creates. Chapter 2 is a bigger, further picture of God creating mankind and and putting this tree into the Garden of Eden. That was the choice. You have free will, Adam and Eve. You want to be in relationship with me? You want to choose life with me? Then stay away from that tree. The day you eat of it, it violates the command, and we will be separated. And it's exactly what happened. Adam and Eve took the fruit of that tree, they partook of it, they ate it, and that fast, they were out of God's presence. And as much as God wants you to be in his presence, the truth is, as violators of the law, we're out. And because of that, we're far from God. Our choice is driving our lives right to eternal damnation. And that reality caused God to act. He redeemed us. The word redeemed literally means paying a debt in full. Somebody's convicted of a crime, they're sentenced, there's a penalty. Sometimes it's a financial penalty. Sometimes it's a significant financial penalty. Sometimes it's a stint locked in a jail cell behind behind bars. When you're guilty, you pay your debt. There's There's no getting around it. The debt must be paid. Paying the ransom, redeeming something, means paying the debt in full. Somebody else coming along and saying, I'll take care of that. What you need to know here, friends, is that the fine for being a sinful person, for violating God's law, is eternity separated from God. The place is called hell. But what I want you to hear me say in the same breath is that God could hardly, he could hardly even stand to think that that was going to be the reality for, for all of creation. His love for you runs deep. And while you deserved exactly what you were going to get, God said, don't want it to happen. So he came up with an alternative plan. His alternative plan was to pay the ransom, to redeem you so that you could be released. He chose to redeem you from the curse of the law. And what you need to know here, friends, is that for you to be set free, that penalty had to be paid in full. And God's plan enabled it to happen. Jesus came, and he came for one purpose, to die. He came to die in your place. He came to take what you deserved and to put it upon his shoulders and take it himself. He paid your penalty. Isaiah chapter 53, 5 says, but he was pierced. This was written 700 years before Jesus ever showed up on the earth. He was pierced for our transgressions. You might just put my transgressions, the word my in there. 
He was crushed for my iniquity. The punishment that brought me peace was upon him. And by his wounds, I am healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, my iniquity. It's an amazing picture of the love of God. Not only does he want you, not only did he choose to have a relationship with you, he paid the impossibly high cost of redeeming you, of ransoming you back. Because of that, he has completely cleared the path of all obstacles that could be in the way of you coming to him. And, and listen, friends, God did it when you were hardly worthy of it. See, there's this thinking out there that somehow I got to go out and clean up my act and make myself good enough to come to Christ. And the truth is you'll never get there. Because even if you had one sin in your life, you're separated from him. You're separated with the due penalty of eternity, separated from him. God's not asking you to clean up your act to come to him. In fact, Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 5, verse 6. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, that's when Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. I mean, you, you know that somebody who jumps in front of a, a bullet or something, you know, for another person, they deem them worthy and they do it. But would you do that for a rat? N- no. You wouldn't offer up your life to somebody who was unworthy of it. But it's exactly what Jesus did. Ver, verse 8 says, God demonstrated his love for us in this. While, you were sin- while we were still, still sinners, it, it, this word literally could be translated enemies. While we were enemies of God, while we were standing at, at a length, shaking our fist at him, saying, I will do what I want to do, how I want to do it. I don't care about your commandments. That's when Jesus died for us. Now, friends, it's amazing to me to think about it. Jesus carried the full freight, the full weight of every person's sins. He paid for them. And get this, he paid the sin of everybody who would reject it. And here's the truth, friends, you are blessed. God chose you. He wants you. He's predestined you to be adopted into his family, to be his son, to be his daughter. He paid the price to enable it to happen. He he redeemed you. And two more blessings. Let me put them in front of you just really quickly. Number four, God enlightened you. He made it all known. Paul writes in verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he proposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. Listen, God didn't just do the work. He's gone to great extremes to make the work known. The Bible, the word of God has been given down through the ages and God has carefully preserved this word. He's carefully preserved it to be brought to us page by page, sentence by sentence, word by word. God wanted us to have it in exacting terms so that we would know exactly what God's heart and God's will and how God worked. The book you hold in your hands, the Bible, is an amazing story of the extremes God was willing to go to to make it all happen. And let me tell you, friends, 
the Bible's amazing. I, I've, I've been reading it, studying it seriously for nearly 45 years. And every time I open up its pages and every time I, 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 I sit down to start taking something in, I, I am just overwhelmed by the will, the purpose, the plan, the heart of God. I'm bowled over by his promises and by his encouragement. And then God has gone to great extremes to protect it and bring it to us. God didn't work in a vacuum, in some distant basement where nobody would know what he was doing. No, God, God, God laid it out. And we are blessed because we live in a day where it's easy to understand it, to easy to see, to know the whole story. Now, for years in the Old Testament, people were trying to figure it out. There were promises and prophecies about what was going to happen and what was going to come. And, and, and the Jews living in the Old Testament world were, were listening to this and trying to piece it together. And if you study that history, you know that they reached a lot of wrong conclusions. But, but the day came that Jesus literally showed up. And he interpreted everything that was been written. He fulfilled all the prophecies to point that he really was the one, the Messiah. And then he died for us. And now Paul is saying the mystery has been revealed. It's not a mystery any longer. I mean, we are enlightened because of what God brought to us. And, and, and what God wants us to do is hear it, accept it, and then spend our lives giving it entrusted the Bible to us, entrusted the commands to us to give it away. You may not think it's true, but it is. While, the, while, there are, while there are a lot of people that are out there despising and being angry about who God is and his commands and rejecting him and even denying his existence, for every person that's in that condition, I'm just going to tell you, there are many, many, many others that are not. There are millions and millions of people in the world that are hungry for truth, hungry for reality, hungry for some, for, for some love, hungry for a little bit of encouragement, hungry for some hope. And we have it. The unbelievable story of redemption is, is a story that people want to hear. And Paul says we need to give it. And it leads to one more blessing. One more I just want to put in front of you really quickly. And it's, it's the last thing that Paul really puts in front of us if, in, is he brings a section of Scripture to a close, and that's that God has sealed us with a guarantee of salvation. Not only God, does God save us, he seals us. Verse 13 says, you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promise, Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. In a couple of months, we will be in October. When we get to October, it will represent 40 years ago in Joplin, Missouri, at Ozark Christian College, kind of out at the edge of the woods, that I asked Brenda Siobhan Swift to marry me. And lots of people would have said at that moment that she was a crazy woman because she said yes, but she said yeah. And when that happened, there was a ring that was put on her finger. It was an engagement ring. It was costly. It was made of gold carried a diamond. It was slipped on her finger. But that was the end. I mean, that, the, the ring, that engagement ring represented a promise. 
a promise of what was to come, a promise of the day, and we set the date, June 27th, June 27th, 1981, where we would meet together in Terre Haute, Indiana, at a church there with friends and family, and her pastor from her home church and our pastor, one of our mentors, Dave Roadcup, and we would stand before these people and before God, and we would make claims of commitment to each other. The ring was a seal that I gave to her saying, I promise I will be there on that day and I will become your husband. And God has worked the same way in you. When you said yes, in joy, he took his spirit, his Holy Spirit, and he put that spirit in you. You are sealed. You are sure. You carry the mark of the Lord in your body. And he is enthused and excited for the day that's coming when you will meet at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Friends, in a day and age where trouble seems to be mounting all around us, it would be easy to be angry and depressed and afraid. Quarantines, fears of death, loss, loss of jobs, damage to the economy, retirement funds that are disappearing. We are living in a day of uncertainty. But God wants you to open up your minds to something bigger, the bigger picture, not the moment in time, not the temporal world. He wants you to open up your mind to eternity, and he wants you to start counting your blessings. You've been chosen. You've been predestined. You've been redeemed. You've been enlightened. You've been sealed. And friends, for that, we have reason to rejoice. Wouldn't you agree? I am blessed. Would you say it with me? I am blessed. Bow your heads. Would you do that with me? And friends, all of it is activated because you choose him. Here's my question. Have you? Have you chosen the Lord? He's knocking on your heart right now. If you've never taken that step, he's saying, how about it? Right now. Right now. He can hardly wait. He's got your picture. He wants to put it in his wallet, and he's waiting for you to say yes. And friends, for the rest of us who have made that choice, he wants you living in assurance. He doesn't want you living in fear about whether God really loves you or not. He wants you to know he does. With everything that is in them, he's made the way. He's redeemed you. He's written your name in his book. He's chosen you. And he wants you to rest in the truth. So, Father, help us today whether we've never taken the step or whether we've taken it and we need a little bit of assurance. Father, help us today to move to the place that you would want us to be, and that's deeply rooted in relationship with you. Father, we're grateful for Jesus, grateful that he makes it possible. 
grateful that he's paid the way, that he's paved it, that he's out wooing us to draw us to him. And now, Father, help us to find great joy in that truth. And Father, help us to bring you great joy by accepting it and living in it, trusting it, claiming it, and singing your prayers because of the blessings you pour into our lives. And we lift it in the name of the one who makes it all possible. His name is Jesus. And God's people said,